This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, so definitely some trouble for Johnson & Johnson today. Just take a look at the stock. Down almost 12% at its lows. Uh, right now, just down about 9.5%, so off its lows. Uh, this after a Reuters report said the company knew for decades that asbestos was sometimes present in its baby powder. There's been a lot of news about this over the last uh, year or so, a couple of years, I should say. Here with an update on what we know and what we're hearing from the company is Barry is Bailey Lipschultz. He's equities reporter at Bloomberg News. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York. Hey, Bailey, um, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. We were talking earlier about the J&J story. I guess this is where a timeline is very important to understand what the company has put out there, what maybe it hasn't put out there. So set us straight. What do we know? So as far as we know, Bloomberg reported back in September 2017 that Johnson & Johnson may have known for decades um, that asbestos was in their talcum powder. Um, it's been, as you said, in the news for a number of years, and has been has been a has been a debate and an overhang for the stock since then. Reuters report comes out this morning, um, saying essentially rehashing that news and putting it in a nice feature. Um, shares, as you said, come under pressure about at the peak or at the bottom, about forty five billion dollars wiped away from the market cap. Yeah. Um, sell side analysts come out defending the stock, saying nothing really is new in this news report. Company comes out. Um, with a statement on Reuters report saying it's wrong in a number of areas, commenting back defending it. But a lot of the concern is over how large these potential lawsuits could be. The litigation. The litigation, exactly. And how how large could it be? Because you guys do a nice job of putting some uh, estimates around this, uh, courtesy of Bloomberg Intelligence. So Bloomberg Intelligence estimates between 10 and $20 billion on the current um, about 11,000 pending cases. Wells Fargo also commented saying, in their view, even if you double um, that number, it still could only come out to about $6.5 billion, which is very much on the lower end. Um, if you're looking back in July, the company settled a settlement or had a settlement with 22 women for $4.69 billion, and the stock didn't really react. But is there the case that there is some litigation that we might not be aware of or that it might turn out to be, I know what you just said, if you double it, which would be pretty substantial, that they still could kind of deal it. They've got a bunch of cash, right, Uh, or cash-like securities that they can certainly tap into. Um, But is, is there anything new or anything more that explains this kind of decline? Well, the big concern is that can there be a criminal charge? And I was talking to a lawyer um, or a member of the Michigan um, School of Business who has experience in this, and he was saying there's very little likelihood of criminal charges. Civil liability is a huge overhang, and that's what we've seen settled. But from their point of view and the people I'm talking to, criminal charges is not something that should stem from this report. So you watch equities, you watch stock markets all day long. Talk to us a little bit about the depth of this reaction and you know what it may say not just about this company but kind of the nervousness that investors have at this moment you want it's one of those 
that always comes up in a conversation with the portfolio manager. Um, you don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun your friend. So <laughs> I love that. Get ahead of the curve. So yeah. a lot of portfolio managers that I talk to are saying we're not necessarily selling out of Johnson Johnson. Obviously, it's a huge staple. It's so heavily tied to a number of ETFs and indexes. Mm-hmm. But you want to get out early. And we saw that accelerate in this morning's trading where it was down a couple of percent um, through about 10 o'clock. And then it really accelerated into um, the mid afternoon around 1130 when it really hit that bottom. What would happen though, if, if it turns into criminal cases, is that the case that it could just be, you know, a lot more cases, a lot more of a financial impact? Or is it that we start to talk about I don't know, changes at the company and what it means. I don't know. Tell me what the difference is if we start to go down that path. If you go down, and from my a understanding, path. not, I'm yeah, not no. distinguished Sorry, and law, I know you're not but, a lawyer. Um, from my understanding, if it does go down a criminal path, you're looking at likely larger sums of payments and potentially having to go back to people who already potentially have been settled with. And this being, oh, you're opening the kind of the fire hydrant for how many people can assert claims and how many people were at risk if it was criminal, whereas civil, you have to look at, from my understanding, um, who can file right. and who has a right to file based on this potential. And it's important to remember, and you know, Bailey mentioned this at the top of the conversation, you know, this idea that $45 billion can be wiped out uh, here and was wiped out at least for a time. I mean, this is a $358 billion market cap, co- cap company. It's a it's a company yeah. that has products that we all use, uh, and it's not necessarily a name that we think about as much. We spend so much of our time, you know, talking about tech stocks and other big concerns. Uh, you know, this is a really important company, and as Bailey said, in the context of index indexes and and being one of the widely held names, it really is important. Well, and I will say, a few years back, I spent a lot of time kind of digging into this company, and they do have you know three very distinct businesses. They play in the consumer area, big time pharmaceutical, and they've got incubators out on the West Coast and around the world to kind of help cultivate the next wave of uh, pharmaceutical products. And they're working with companies, medical devices, and diagnostics. So they are spread around a lot of different businesses. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's funny to talk to investors because you do obviously a lot of general invest in it, but also some med tech right. specialist as well as drug specialists. Are these cases so far just in the United States, or are we also talking global cases? As far as I know. Okay. United States. Yeah, so you do wonder if that's another shoe that could Yeah, drop. absolutely. Bailey Lipschultz, equities reporter for Bloomberg, following uh, very closely the J&J $45 billion uh, drop in its market cap today on more concerns about asbestos in their talcum powder. Yeah, we want to talk a little bit about uh, maybe how to make uh, your money tree grow a little bit more money. Uh, it might be tough because what we're hearing is a lot of cautiousness heading into 2019, a lot more vol- volatility expected as well. Our next guest says, yeah, I'm still a bit positive, but uh, the heady moments are behind us. I love that line. Uh, let's get into this with uh, Tom Stringfellow back with us, President and Chief Investment Officer at Frost Investment Advisors, more than $3.6 billion in assets under management, based in San Antonio, but in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio today. So when you go out with a bunch of friends and they say, Tom, tell us what's going on in the market, what do you say to them? Uh, what we talk about is the the headlines of the day and how that impacts all of our emotions. And so that's the that's really the trend of the market today. It's all emotion. We all are, base our, our investment uh, 
mentality on what the latest headline is. So whether it's U.S.-China trade, whether it's Brexit, whether it's Fed talk, all of that is? I I'd think that's all of what determines the mood of the investors today. In fact, uh, you know, I look at a year ago, we were talking the complete opposite. The market had run up. I remember December 17th conversations about how it might be at the top, you know, maybe take a little bit off the table. Fast forward, well, it was... Sage advice, I don't know if anybody did it, ourselves included, but, you know, now I look at where we're at. There is optimism, but it's hard to get to that optimism just based on the topics we're talking about today. Yeah, over and over and over again. What he says when he's with friends (laughs) is, order another pitcher of margaritas, and then then we'll talk talk more about it. Y'all. Two pitchers. Uh, Yeah, there you go. Um, Corporate debt, I know, is something that, that you've looked at pretty closely. We were talking with our Lisa Bromowitz, our colleague Lisa Bromowitz yesterday. She had a big interview with Dan Iveson out at PIMCO. And that's something that's on his mind. You know, yeah. He oversees $1.7 trillion, uh, I think. How does it play through to your investment thesis? Well, the corporate debt's going to have an impact on earnings. Uh, it's it's kind of like the, the recent tax cut we had on the corporate side. certainly was a boost to earnings. Now, as the rates start moving up, the corporate debt's going to have the negative impact. The question is going to be, is it going to be a long-term impact for some companies that borrowed needlessly just to uh, uh, raise some cash for emergency operations? You know, I, I don't I don't have a lot of uh, confidence in the survivability of those companies. For companies that were borrowing because it was cheap access to use for expansion, there aren't near as many of those types of companies that were out there. How did we go, though, from the argument being, and I remember having these conversations over and over and over again about how smart corporate America was because money was cheap, yeah. certainly to re, you know, um, you know, refinance their debt, but also to take on money just in case because it was so cheap. And now we're at that point where, my God, what did you guys do? You built up your balance sheets with all this debt now. Yeah, I'd equate it to just a normal household. You know, borrow what you need because you need it. Don't borrow it just to have cash on hand for emergency that's debt-laden. And I think that's what a lot of companies did. It was cheap access to the markets, and investors were willing to, to, to loan money at those rates. I just want to update everybody. I just um, see the Dow down about 500 points as we speak, down 2%. Uh, you've got the S&P, a decline of 48, down 1.8%. And NASDAQ, J- Jason, also down about 1.8%, down 131 points. So we're, we're pretty much taking another leg down and at our lows of the day. Well, and at this rate, uh, we're seeing some headlines that say this would be the biggest quarterly decline, I believe, for the S&P since 2011, uh, which is... Yeah, this has been a, a rotten, certainly a bearish quarter. I mean, if you're bearish, <laughs> right. you're probably a lot more happier. And and one of the questions that comes up then, Tom, is corporate earnings going into, you know, sort of wrapping up this yeah. quarter as we are, as we were just talking about, and starting to see those numbers as they come out in just a month or so. How bullish or bearish are you on the strength of the earnings side, beyond the balance sheet, the earnings side? I'm, actually, I'm, I'm I'm pretty confident the earnings will be declining from where we've seen them. We've already seen the trend mid-20s percent last quarter. It looks like estimates now about 13 percent to 16 percent uh, current quarter. Uh, next quarter, first Q, uh, first quarter next year, probably in the six, seven percent. So, you know, we're already seeing those things starting to ratchet down. I think the final number is going to be a little bit different, maybe a little bit better, but we're still going to see double digit, I think, or decline from double digit to single digit, primarily because the benefit of the tax cuts just worn off. How quickly or how much? Oh, I'm sorry, Jason. Well, no, I was just going to say, as we as we wrap up with only about 30 seconds left, but as you talk to your customers, Mm -hmm. your clients, when they call you, 
What's the number one worry on their mind? Number one, number one worry has really been trade, you know, the complete trade, trade. issues. What is happening here? How is that going to impact uh, corporate profits? And I think we've already seen, you know, some of the impact is a number of companies are talking about uh, either a higher cost of goods from bringing products in or limited markets as they're trying to, uh, to export out. I'm just curious because the bear sentiment is at a reading of 48.87. If you look at um, you know the AAI U.S. investor sentiment, uh, David Sowerby, who I talked to this morning, says it's well above the long-term average and a good contrarian gauge. And I do wonder if everybody's so pessimistic, just got about 10 seconds, everybody's kind of thrown in the towel that they're overdoing it. I would say yes. Uh, You know, the the towel's being thrown. Now, whether or not that means uh, a true sale capitulation, we'll see. But people are extremely nervous today. Tom Stringfellow, thank you so much. The towel's in the air. We'll (laughs) see where it lands. Tom Stringfellow, (laughs) President and CEO of Frost Investment Advisors. Business from San Antonio. If you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week, Carol Master along with Jason Kelly. And earlier, great interview by my co-host Jason uh, Kelly. He spoke to the governor of uh, Ohio, the Republican governor of Ohio. We're talking about John Kasich. And uh, he caught up with him on Bloomberg Television. And they talked about a lot of things, including uh, the GM plant in that state, maybe trying to save it, and whether or not he's going to run in 2020. Listen up. So let's talk about GM. You mentioned it. There's obviously been uh, quite a back and forth between the president and Mary Barra, the CEO of GM. As you said, this hits right at home for you. The president has said he may want to pull subsidies um, from GM. Do you agree yeah. with that? I have no idea what he even means. Okay, I don't know what he's talking about. Uh, back and forth with the head of General Motors. Okay, where is that going to get you? I I deal with her, and I've dealt with that company, and we are now working together to see if we can figure out what the future of that plan is. You know, they're producing a car that that people, they can't make any money on. Nobody's going to continue to do that. So the question is, is there a possibility of a new vehicle? Is there a possibility of other kinds of economic activity in that plant? Is there the possibility of combining that activity with a partnership with somebody else? Or can we take that plant and repurpose it? That's where we need to be now. And, you know, yelling and screaming or, you know, I'm going to do this or do that isn't going to get you anywhere. I mean, it feels good, uh, but it's not constructive. So my team is working with her team to see where we would end up. We lost the General Motors plant in Dayton, Ohio, years ago. We were able to bring a Chinese company that now has 2,400 workers with salaries greater than what they had before. We repurposed it. Now, you can take a look at facilities and repurpose them, and you can bring, you can turn lemons into lemonade. We'll see, though. I'm not prepared to say they're going to get rid of the plant. I'm not prepared to to draw a conclusion. But the idea, I mean, what subsidy is going to take away? I don't know what he's talking about. Elon Musk has said that, you know, maybe he wants to take over the plant. By the way, by the way, he also said, he also said, that there were going to be more jobs coming in. So I don't know what, what to, to think about that. Right. Well, if Elon Musk wanted that plant, that'd be terrific. Yeah, so you'd take I'm that trying call. to get, get a call to him. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to call him myself. Well, there you yeah, go. I mean, we want to have conversa- you want to have conversations. And Elon, if you're watching, you know, I'm trying to reach you. <laughs> but there, there are other companies that will want to look at that plant, and we'll see. But in the, in the short term here, we've got to figure out what the strategy of, strategy of General Motors is. And I, I said to Mary Barra on my long call with her, 
I said, Mary, look, we just have to have total cooperation because there's there are people there. These are families. This is an iconic place in in that part of Ohio, and we we want to we want to look at everything because we're talking about flesh and blood, not just the bottom line on profits. And she said, I hear you. Right. And they have been very responsive. We'll see where this ends up. So you have talked uh, at length about sort of where the Republican Party is now. Maybe not the party uh, that you joined, low those many. Uh, years ago. Has the party gone too far for you and, and people like you at this point? And can you pull it back? Well, look, in the elections, the midterm elections, in um, the, 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 Republic, or the Republicans took a beating in Illinois, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, and here in Ohio, they won everything. And so the roadmap that we've laid out, my administration, my team, is that no one gets left behind. Small businesses are helped. The disabled are helped. Uh, you know, we, we, we are focused on everybody having a chance, our minority community. Uh, we're trying to rehab people with drugs and people, give people help with mental illness, trying to give people a second chance, uh, you know, nonviolent uh, felons, give them a chance to get on their feet. We've reduced workers' comp costs by, I don't know, like $8 billion. It's been unbelievable. We're fiscally balanced. We have money in the bank, and, you know, people like that. They like that. Police and community, dispute resolutions, uh, you know, uh, expanded health care so that more people had health care. It's a pretty good roadmap. And, and the voters rewarded Republican candidates because right. they said no reason to change. That's what I think Republicans should be thinking about. So you're retiring, moving on to the next phase of your life. I spoke with I, I wouldn't call it. No, I'm, I'm not retiring. Retiring from this I'm job. I'm not retiring. Well, I'm from leaving this job. You're leaving this job. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have a lot of things I'm going to do. All right. So let's talk about that. I, I spoke with one of your uh, good I'm pals not tell last you. week. <laughs> I, I spoke with one of your good pals last week, uh, Governor Hickenlooper out in Colorado. Here's what he had to say about you and, and your friendship. To have us work together on health care, I think together we got other Republican and Democratic governors to stand up to, to not dismantle the Affordable Care Act. I think that was a powerful expression for, again, Republican and Democrat standing together but i'm not sure i don't think we'll ever see uh, see the two of us running together so he said you know maybe not seeing the two of you running together but i gotta tell you we hear a lot about you know maybe a potential uh pairing hickenlooper Kasich, Kasich hickenlooper is there any possibility of that down you're the road spending, you're spending you're spending too much time at cocktail parties <laughs> stay out of them but what do you think about 2020 in general well it's a uh, you know a year and a half away and any chance that we might see? Are you doing any serious I, I, exploration? I, 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 Jay, I, <coughs> Jay's, I don't want to give you a hard time here. Um, we don't know what's going to happen in 2020. I really don't know what I'm going to do in 2020. I've done these interviews 50 times, yep. and I seriously look at it. And if, it, if I can be impactful, if I can make a difference for the country, you know, then I'll do something. And maybe there's a way for me to be impactful if I don't run. I'm, I don't have any doubt that I still could be impactful. So we're watching. All options are on the table, and we're de deadly serious. And in terms of, of Kasich and Hickenlooper, the, you put those names together, it's like almost longer than the alphabet. That won't work. Any chance we would see you as an independent? All options are on the table.
So all options on the table, Carol, for Governor John Kasich Can of Ohio. Can I just say, we talked to all these investment professionals. Man, that was a great hedge. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very big hedge. And I think he was relatively clear there at the end that yeah. he's considering just about everything. It does seem, you know, having talked to both Kasich and Hickenlooper over, over the last week, it, it does seem unlikely that they're going to get together. But you never know. They have been out on the road together. Mm-hmm. You know, all things right seem now. to be open. And you look at the field uh, as it stands now, certainly on the Democratic side, but even on the Republican side, you do start to hear names like John Kasich. You start to hear names like uh, Jeff Flake. I mean, I did love how he bristled a little bit when I, you know, dared to use the R word, retire. Uh, he's like, I'm not retiring. I'm, you know, just leaving this job. So he's got to, he's got some ambition for sure. Now, let's remember he was in the House for a long time. Right. Also briefly an investment banker uh, with Lehman Brothers uh, based there in Ohio. So we'll but see what he does next. he's been governor for how long? A while, Two right? terms, yeah. Two terms. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So we'll see uh, what I believe since, uh, yeah, 2010. Uh, and, and an overwhelmingly popular governor of late, although I, you know, I was talking to uh, one of our colleagues who just recently moved from Ohio, and she was talking about he was not initially popular. And one of the things I didn't get to talk to him about, which you and I have talked about a lot on this show, we've talked to Eric Cantor about, is the Republicans have lost the suburbs, and those are kind of Kasich Republicans. So yeah. we'll see if they can get that and back. And definitely have, a trou- uh, or have had trouble kind of really rounding up women in terms of support. So, uh, yeah, great interview. Thank well you. done, well done. So, Carol, one of the really fun parts of our job is we get to see everything in Bloomberg Business. We can really dive in. We record a – throughout the course of the week, we put together a weekend show. Yes. And so we really get to pick our favorites. And I got to say, this was one of our favorites, this story about uh, – I love this story. BTMs, Bitcoin ATMs, essentially. They're all over Manhattan. We've walked yeah. by Bodega after Corner Store where they apparently are. Tom Schoenberg is financial crimes reporter for Bloomberg. He's on the phone with us from the Washington, D.C. Bureau of Bloomberg. Tom, phenomenal story. It's one of the most read and a must read, I should say, uh, in this issue. So you're the financial crimes reporter. These things are a little dicey. Tell us about them. Well, they're interesting. And thank you very much for that. Um, Yeah. So these are machines that probably, you know, most people come across in their daily lives and they have no idea unless they're seeking out an ATM and accidentally try plugging, you know, a credit card into this thing. Oops. But it's a machine that looks very much like a, an ATM, and uh, but instead you go up to the machine, and instead of taking cash out, you're going to put cash into it in order to buy Bitcoin. And um, these machines uh, are sort of popping up all over the world uh, at a rate of about five new ones a day. There's about 4,000 worldwide and, you know, more than half in the United States. I got to say, one of the stats that really jumped out at me, Tom, was another five pop up every day in terms of BTMs. And they're now, what, thousands around the United States, thousands around the world, what? Yeah, about 4,000 around the world, uh, about, you know, like 2,300 in the United States. Um, And, you know, the reason why these things keep growing in part is because they're very cheap to sort of get out onto the street. And what we're seeing is that there's, you know, you have to follow uh, you know, anti-money laundering regulations like any financial service industry. Um, but what we're sort of seeing here is, you know, since it's very easy to get a federal license to, to you know, 
operate one of these machines and it doesn't at the moment now much regulatory follow-up uh, that uh, you know the machines themselves you know you got people coming in they've never run a financial service business before right and so you know there's there's a lot of there's a lot of things you need to do in order to do that um, otherwise you may perhaps be clean, cleaning money for criminals as you said pretty easy to get one of these machines up and running um, it's also apparently pretty easy to get money even if you don't have a real ID because you guys talk about one individual <laughs> who actually had the uh, a license of old blue eyes we're talking about yes Frank Sinatra <laughs> and you're supposed to have you know authentic ID but this person was able to uh, pull out a bunch of money or pull out a bunch of Bitcoin yeah, I was able to was able to buy a bunch of Bitcoin, and um, yeah. So the individual that actually you know we, we have in our piece is is someone who actually works for a Bitcoin uh, teller machine uh, company, the actual the largest one um, the largest one out there, and he's their chief lawyer, and he's kind of hired to kind of make sure that their own systems uh, were in place, but also kind of what one of the things he does regularly is go out there and sort of test competitors' machines as well as trying to bring attention to sort of law enforcement and regulators that uh, there's a lot of sort of, you know, uh, companies operating out here without sort of proper right. compliance, right? And so, you know, we, the, the piece notes a specific, uh, specific incident where he went into uh, a shop and, uh, you know, sort of did all sorts of things, including using a, a sort of a printout of a, of a Frank Sinatra ID that he found online. Yeah. And was able to sort of transact uh, several thousand dollars in, uh, in, you know, put several thousand dollars in cash into this machine and, and turn it into Bitcoin. So, Tom, it's not a coincidence that you write about financial crimes and you were a lead writer on this story. This has been the knock on Bitcoin is that it's kind of the preferred currency of the underworld. And so how much should people be worried that there is some shady stuff going on around this network of BTMs? Well, I think that it's something, you know, I mean, uh, you know, as we see a lot of times in the sort of financial crime world, you know, new tech or new things, uh, you know, might get sort of taken advantage of until enforcement starts doing something about it, until, uh, you know, regulators really start looking at it, and it's is a new world for them. And as we can tell from sort of what's happened over the the past years, the SEC has really gotten involved uh, regarding sort of fraudulent uh, ICOs and other spaces, and this is something that, you know, for the moment, uh, it hasn't gotten much attention. Um, I know that the person that, you know, we, we sort of follow in our story, the, you know, was trying, who's trying to bring some attention to this, you know, he's in that business. So yeah. his idea is like, look, if we're able to sort of make a more legitimate business here, and, and you know, the ones that are, that are not corrupt or are able to sort of operate uh, within the lines of the law, they're going to succeed. And he wanted to sort of, you can have a legitimate business here, which is that you know, a lot of people also you use these machines. Right. They may be buying product from overseas, and they need to transact quickly, and that's kind of, you know, there's other uses. For yeah. It. Uh, thanks so much. Tom Schoenberg, financial crimes reporter for Bloomberg Down in Washington. The story, want to launder money? Try the crypto ATM in your corner store. It's in the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine on newsstands now. And also tune in to the weekend version yes. of our show uh, airing tonight at 6 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio and at noon tomorrow on BTV. This is Bloomberg.
So, Sam, I want to talk more about the Fed in a second, but before we get to that, I want to ask your thoughts about housing, uh, in part because you're down there in Atlanta. You know, the Southeast has been such an engine for growth economically, and the housing market has been one of the most interesting to watch across the region. But even right there uh, in your backyard, as you look across the data related to housing, especially keeping in mind that Housing was what essentially drove us into the the Great Recession of 10 years ago. What do you see in those numbers that either gives you some concern or maybe gives you some optimism, if that even exists, uh, going into 19? Yeah, it's a great question. We we see a lot of optimism, generally speaking, towards housing, and and you know we have seen some recent softness in the data. For example, if you think about existing home sales year to date down 2.1 percent, uh, new home sales up slightly, up 2.9 percent. Uh, that's gotten a lot of attention recently, and and ironically, the the existing home sales dip is is in our view just more of a attributable to the the I would say the lack of supply that we have in the U.S. from a housing perspective. And if you think about single-family inventory of, of U.S. houses uh, in relation to total households today, it's actually never been this low. So just a general lack of supply for single-family housing in, a, in an environment where we're seeing increasing demand, uh, as we've talked about on this show before, just you know, seeing robust demand from the millennials as they come online, uh, more in the form of first-time home purchasers as they continue to form households. So uh, see a, overall a very f- 
positive fundamental backdrop from a housing perspective. There, right. there are certainly areas of the U.S. that have had a tremendous run in the post-crisis period of improving home prices. But the, 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 the interesting thing is, is everyone's so concerned about late cycle, so concerned about uh, housing, for example, rolling over. We, we actually just think it's, it's going to be a, a really an, an area of health uh, as we continue to look forward and on a more sustainable, longer, tr- longer run trajectory as opposed to the former boom-bust well, boom cycles we lived through and the crisis. And you know, Jason, I do think of what we heard from uh, Glenn Kelman yesterday, the president and CEO of Redfin, right? That people, like some of the really hot markets, whether it's Seattle or what have you, and now people are kind of, because it's gotten so expensive, are kind of looking into secondary markets uh, and you're seeing price appreciation there. So they're just moving because there isn't the right. supply or the affordability. Um, so it's an interesting way to look at it. All right. So on the fixed income side of things, you know, we've been certainly paying attention to what we've seen on the treasury trade. You know, do we are we concerned about, you know, somewhat of an inverted yield curve or increased flattening? Are we worried about the 10 year going back below 3 percent? I don't know. How do you see it right now? The 10 years at 289. Yeah, so, you know, you've seen a tremendous amount of curve flattening, as you pointed out, and, and uh, there's been a lot of fear and, and, and you know, clearly about the, the, the twos, tens curve is often the one that's quoted about the shape and, and the potential inversion there is, is often a signal of, uh, you know, can be of, of, of a recession. Uh, we don't necessarily think it's a signal, as I mentioned, from an immediate recession perspective, but it, it does signal that the Fed is, is near the end of its tightening campaign. And I think that's, that's what's pretty incredible is that, uh, especially this week, and what's, what's, I would say, changed overall is that you know, the currently the futures market is pricing in the, the end of, a, of, of the Fed's tightening cycle after next week's meeting. Uh, so we think that's significant. We think yeah. it's good for risk assets as we head into 2019 as, as the Fed gives a pretty ironic, I would say, dovish tightening next week and, um, you know, signaling this could perhaps be, at least for the near term, the, the end Sam, of the, the tightening campaign on the front end. Sam, just very quickly, just got about 30 seconds. Our John Authors, uh, who writes about the markets, well-known, he says the S&P 500 financials is now down more than 20% from its high earlier this year. He says not good. Uh, just tweeting that out in 20 seconds. The financials, do we need the financials for the markets to turn around? You know, it, it would certainly be, be helpful. We, we think that financials overall are in excellent shape, and we think that the most of the weakness has really been attributable at two tens curve flatness, which – you know, if the if the Fed does signal, I would say a dovish tightening next week and a perhaps a you know pause for for the near term on the mm-hmm. front end, that could be really good for financials and, and you know and uh, bank stocks as we look forward. Sam Dunlap, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Senior Portfolio Manager at Angel Oak Capital Advisors, nine point two billion in assets under management. On the phone from Atlanta. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at two p.m. Eastern only on. Bloomberg Radio.